I remember the day that I found out that Pat and Rex had named their son after me. He was a couple of years old. Don't you think that somebody should tell you if they name their son after you? You think they should, like, tell you? I mean, shouldn't wait a couple of years. They should tell. Maybe he was, I don't know, maybe it was more than a couple of years. It was a long time. But anyway, after a while, I remember when he went through that stage with me when I would start to talk to him or something, he'd go, annoying alert, annoying alert. Remember that? I can't, do you remember how old he was then? Seven? Yeah, about seven years old. And that was, you know, it's like I'd come around and be like, annoying alert, annoying alert. And, you know, some people find me annoying. And obviously James was one of them. So I think he still finds me a little annoying because I press the limits. He's at the age of puberty, and that's a very scary age for boys. So if I pat him on the leg or something, he stiffens and freaks out. Oh! I hug him. Oh! He gets a little weird. And I'm sure it's, it's pretty annoying to him. But, you know, being annoying is really a thankless job. And... I haven't even reached the age of Socrates yet. Now, Socrates was past 70 when, for being annoying, he was sentenced to death and then executed in 399 B.C. Well, let's just define our terms so that we all know what we're talking about. We all want to be on the same page with this. We'll just take a dictionary definition, the Oxford Dictionary for the English language, which is, believe it or not, the language that we are supposed to be speaking. It's a living language, so it's changing all the time, but I'm hoping that by the time this podcast comes out, annoying will still mean the same thing when it comes out as it does now. Annoying, causing irritation. Irritating, troublesome, bothersome, irksome. Causing irritation. You know what they say, the grain of sand causes the oyster great pain. It's a grain of sand that gets in the oyster shell, and it irritates the oyster. So the oyster surrounds that with mother of pearl. It coats it with pearl, and then it keeps on coating it because it grows. It keeps coating it and coating it and coating it. And we end up with pearls because of this irritation. What I'm trying to say is there's two ways to look at being annoying and being irritating. A gadfly, now because I mentioned Socrates, I'll also have to mention gadfly. A gadfly is a fly that bites livestock, especially a horsefly. And also an annoying person, especially one who provokes others into action by criticism. Well, that covers a lot of territory, but everybody can be annoying. But we're looking at a specific kind of irritation and annoyance now. And that's what I'd like to focus on. What annoys, what bothers, what irritates you? If it's criticism, if it's somebody hugging you, if it's somebody getting in your space, somebody saying, well, you look like maybe you put on a couple pounds or whatever. You know, I don't know what it is that annoys or bothers or irritates you. But this, if you're willing, if you're willing to work, which I realize that not everyone is, and certainly not everyone is all the time, but from time to time, people become willing to work on themselves. They do wish to develop, and mostly that's what it is. It's a wish to develop. It's like, oh, I, I wish I could develop. <laughs> yeah, well, I wish upon a star, too. But there are times when we actually are willing to do something about that development. So it's more than just a wish. It's actually something, evaluation, and we can put it into action. So if, indeed, you are willing to develop, willing to work on yourself, then being annoyed, being bothered, being irritated is an excellent opportunity to do so. The problem is we wish to work on what annoys us thinking that it's outside of us. 
We don't accept the responsibility for our own annoyance, for our own irritation. It has to be put outside. It must be someone else. And so when we think about working on what annoys us, of course, we think about working on those annoying people. And so we say, annoying alert, annoying alert. You know, this person's coming around. This person's annoying. We need to get rid of this person. Get this person out of here. Then we won't be annoyed. And then we can go back to sleep. Or then we can go back to our comfort zone, or we can go back into whatever it is that's irritating us, whatever this grain of sand is that we're trying to coat, that we're trying to make it stop. The oyster, not having hands and feet and things of that description, can't push the grain of sand out, so it just has to do something else with it. We all find ways to deal with this. Morris Nichols said, A dog is a dog and a cat is a cat because they have different essences. And it's absurd for you to think a dog should behave like a cat or a cat like a dog. And if you impose your will on them, you will reduce them to a state of imbecility and fear. We think nothing of trying to impose our will on other people, regardless of the damage we may do them. Our world is founded on this very idea, this very idea that we can violently, forcefully change other people so that we don't have to deal with whatever it is that's irritating us or annoying us. Then the whole world is in agreement about this. Let's you and me make those people stop being annoying, stop being irritating, stop being bothersome. And how we'll do that is we'll impose our will on them. And so what we have to get then in order to do that is agreement. Well, it's the easiest thing in the world to get. In this world, the easiest thing in the world to get about someone else being annoying is agreement. Yes. Don't you think they're annoying just a little? Well, yeah, just a little. Well, what about when they say this? Isn't that annoying? What about when they do that? Isn't that annoying? Doesn't that irritate you? Well, yes, now that you mentioned it, it really does. Well, let's make them stop. It starts off very benign, or it looks benign, and then it escalates, and it escalates, and it escalates, until finally we're killing people. We're dropping bombs on them, we're shooting them, we're burning them at the stake, we're beheading them, we're crucifying them, we're doing all these things to them because... We found them annoying because there was something about what they were doing that touched something in us that was sensitive and tender, and we didn't want to look at or deal with. If you're waiting to evolve, I'd like you to consider a few things. Now, if you agree that we, as a rule, think nothing of imposing our will on another human being, we think nothing of imposing our will on animals, but we carry that much, much further. What is the largest minority group in the world? Children. We impose our will on children all the time. So how is that working out? Well, they become adults. And what are they like? Let's just look at what you're like. How easy is it to live with you? I mean, even for you to live with you. And you kind of like you. But what's it like for the other people in your life? Let's not ask them. Let's just not ask them because they're bound to be annoying. And all the little beepers will go off and the, the lights will go, annoying alert, annoying alert. Yeah, our world is founded on such violence, the violence of imposing our will on other people. And we don't care about the damage that we may do to them while we're doing it because we feel annoyed or irritated or bothered. And we want that to stop. So I'd like to just share with you some excerpts from an ancient bit of esoteric literature that I was reading the other day. And it was written by Plato, who was a student of Socrates. And Socrates, as you may remember, was a teacher in Athens, Greece, back almost 2,500 years ago. 
And he had some interesting things to say. After the people who were annoyed by him, who were irritated by him, had an opportunity to put him on trial for being annoying and irritating, he was given the opportunity to speak in his own defense, which is not something we do today unless it is a trial. But you risk your life at a trial for being annoying. So we don't put a lot of people on trial simply for being annoying. We have to have some other reason. So Socrates had this to say, How you, O Athenians, have been affected by my accusers, I cannot tell. But I know that they almost made me forget who I was, so persuasively did they speak. And yet they have hardly uttered a word of truth. But of the many falsehoods told by them, there was one which quite amazed me. I mean when they said that you should be upon your guard and not allow yourselves to be deceived by the force of my eloquence. To say this when they were certain to be detected as soon as I opened my lips and proved myself to be anything but a great speaker did indeed appear to me most shameless, unless by the force of eloquence they mean the force of truth. For if such is their meaning, I admit that I am eloquent. You can see why Socrates had to be shut up why they had to stop this. I mean, that is irritating. If someone passionately goes to persuade an entire group of people that this person is vile and disgusting and needs to be removed from the face of the earth, end it, and the person comes back and says something like that, that just kind of makes them gnash their teeth. Socrates himself had to say, and now, Athenians, I'm not going to argue for my own sake, as you may think, but for yours that you may not sin against the God by condemning me, who am his gift to you. For if you kill me, you will not easily find a successor to me, who, if I may use such a ludicrous figure of speech, am a sort of gadfly, given to the state by God. And the state is a great and noble steed, who is tardy in his motions, owing to his very size, and requires to be stirred into life. I am that gadfly, which God has attached to the state, and all day long, and in all places, am always fastening upon you, arousing and persuading and reproaching you. You'll not easily find another like me, and therefore I would advise you to spare me. I dare say that you may feel out of temper, like a person who has suddenly awakened from sleep. And you think that you might easily strike me dead, as Anitus advises. And then you would sleep on for the remainder of your lives, unless God in his care of you sent you another gadfly. When I say that I am given to you by God, the proof of my mission is this. If I had been like other men, I should not have neglected all my own concerns or patiently seen the neglect of them during all these years and have been doing yours, coming to you individually like a father or elder brother, exhorting you to regard virtue. Such conduct, I say, would be unlike human nature. If I had gained anything or if my exhortations had been paid, there would have been some sense in my doing so, but now... As you will perceive, not even the impudence of my accusers dares to say that I have ever exacted or sought pay of anyone. Of that they have no witness, and I have a sufficient witness to the truth of what I say, my poverty. Well, 2,500 years ago, a compelling argument like that didn't hold water. Now, today, you think about this, you think, well, we're different now. We've changed. Now, we would never put someone like Socrates to death. How many people would say, well, I wouldn't, if, if I was around when they killed Jesus, I wouldn't have let it happen. I wouldn't have run away. I would, mm -hmm. If you're waiting to evolve, consider what the enlightened people of Athens did to their greatest treasure in 399 B.C. Nearly 2,500 years of evolution hasn't changed us. So if you're waiting to evolve, 
so that you can become a nicer, gentler, kinder, more enlightened person. Don't hold your breath. Somehow, people found Gandhi annoying and murdered him. The list of what annoys us enough to kill is seemingly endless. The problem isn't out there. What annoys you? Another person's mechanicalness annoys you. That's a good thing. This work is about finding how to alter ourselves, how to change ourselves, how to take something that's annoying, irritating, and turn it into something good. And so when I say another person's mechanicalness annoys you, what I'm saying is that's a good thing. It means that somewhere in you is the intuition, the sense, the knowing that we shouldn't behave mechanically, that we are meant to be conscious beings and that we should be conscious. Something deep down inside of every one of us knows that. And so it's annoyed at mechanical behaviors in other people. Well, this is problematic because we're gradually brought up in mechanical life by those nearest and dearest to us, the people that we trust the most. We are mechanical, and our own mechanicalness annoys us. What could be more annoying than your own mechanicalness, your own repeated behavior? Oh, I hate it when I do that. So we hate it so much that we have to project it out onto others, or we have to put ourselves to sleep about it, or we have to somehow come up with a buffer so that we can't see the contradiction anymore. The fact is, we know little else other than mechanical behavior. Before esoteric ideas enter into us through practical application, we're full of blame shifting, self-justifying, buffers, and internal considering. We think that everyone should be doing something to keep us from being irritated or annoyed or bothered or irked. We think that it's everyone else's job, everyone else on the planet. In fact, I think we even had somebody once used to say, your job is to make me happy. And as long as you're making me happy, you'll be fine. But when you stop making me happy, your life's going to get miserable. Well, that's a tough road to walk because it's impossible to make another person happy. The switch, the controls for your happiness are inside of you and you're the only one who can reach them. And the controls, the switch for your irritation and annoyance, that's inside of you also, and you're the only one who can reach them. Now, that's the truth. We don't like that truth. If someone tells us that truth enough, they become annoying. And we have this little thing goes off in our head, annoying alert, annoying alert, and we then take action, maybe just to turn them off inside. And someone used to say, well, whenever this person starts to talk, I just turn them off. Why was that? Because they were annoying. And I don't like to be annoyed, so when someone starts to do something that annoys me, I just eliminate them. That's what it means. I eliminate them. I turn them off. I end them. I stop them. I move them away. I put them out of my consciousness. Because it reminds me of my own mechanicalness, and I don't want to be reminded of my own mechanicalness, it wakes me from my sleep in a very unpleasant way. It puts me in an ill temper to be awakened in this way when I'm sleeping peacefully. Behaving consciously in some circumstances is so different from our usual mechanical behavior that it is a staggering conscious shock. Have you behaved consciously in some situation or circumstance that you usually don't and actually been shocked by it? It's like, well, I, I, I didn't get mad. I didn't yell. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I didn't behave in the way I always behaved. It's really a shock. It wakes you up for a moment. What annoys us shows us the boundaries of our being. At the point of annoyance, our being has ceased to support us, regardless of the knowledge that we've gathered. 
And this is where being and knowledge really show a difference. We have all this knowledge. We all know better, but we act worse. And the reason we know better and we act worse is because our body of knowledge is so much bigger than our being. We have small being, small understanding. And what determines that, what circumscribes that, what defines the smallness or the largeness of our being, whatever it may be, is the boundaries of where we get annoyed. How easily can you be annoyed? Right off the bat, if I'm working on something and Buddy wants to go in and out 15 times in five minutes, I get annoyed because I don't want him to do that. I don't want him scratching on the door to go in and scratch. The dog was born on the wrong side of the door. No matter what side of the door he's on, that's the side he doesn't want to be on. He wants to be on the other side of the door. I was talking to some people on Skype or something, FaceTime, in Minnesota, a group of people, and I was in my office, and Buddy kept going in and out, in and out. And these people just started laughing. So how many times I had to get up and let the dog in, let the dog out. They thought it was funny. I didn't think it was so funny. Because of my small being, just pure and simple. I'd love to put it some other way. Well, because the dog's annoying. But because of my small being, because this is where I drew the line. This is where it wasn't okay for me after that. This is where I was not going to be able to allow him to be. It can't be repeated enough that work on gathering knowledge is vastly different from work on being. Gathering knowledge does not increase your level of being. It does not change you, at least not for the better. It just doesn't. This is one of the most difficult things for us to understand. A great teacher once said, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. That great teacher was Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul. And he wrote that in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. People learn knowledge of esoteric ideas, but almost never apply it to themselves. You will find in the world hundreds, perhaps thousands of people who have a big store of esoteric knowledge or knowledge of esoteric ideas, and yet don't apply them to themselves. They're busily applying them to other people, but not to themselves. Why is it so hard to see that we always behave mechanically. Just someone saying, you always behave mechanically. Isn't that annoying? You can feel it go off in your head. Annoying alert, annoying alert. Stop saying that. I don't always do anything. I don't always. Why is it so annoying? Why is it so hard for us to see that we always behave mechanically? Well, the answer is very simple. Pride and vanity put out our eyes so we can't see ourselves. Like two giants, then, they walk before us, arranging the furniture of life. What's the furniture of life? Mostly the mirrors where we might catch a glimpse of ourselves and wake up to what we've become. Pride and vanity go, and they cover the mirrors. And instead, what do they put in their place? What do they cover the mirrors with? They don't put a black cloth over them. No, they cover the mirrors with lovely pictures of ourselves pictures of ourselves and how wonderful we are, how beautiful we are, how generous we are, how kind we are, how long-suffering we are. All of the things that we like in our album, all of the things that we like to hear and see and think about ourselves, all of the things that make our friends our friends because they agree with those pictures, at least on the outside. And if someone doesn't agree enough, then they're not our friend. They get moved into the other bin, the dustbin of enemies. 
or annoying people or gadflies or irritants or bothersome, irksome people. The people who don't really know us. The people who don't subscribe to our pictures of ourselves that have been placed over the mirrors that have been used by pride and vanity to cover the mirrors so that we don't get a glimpse of ourselves. As we are now, we justify anything that we do with impunity while condemning that which annoys us in the most self-righteous way. This is made possible because we have knowledge of self-observation, but no experience with applying it to ourselves, or very little, so I'm not too annoying, or very little experience with applying it to ourselves. We're too busy looking at what we think others do wrong to take a peek at ourselves and find out what it is about me that defines my small being. What it is about me. Why is it that I am bothered and irritated and annoyed by this? What is it about me? What bit of knowledge have I not applied to my own being, to my own self, so that my being hasn't grown beyond that point? The most amazing thing is how easily people can lose their temper and call it something else. It's just amazing to me. Somebody loses their temper. Are you angry? No. I won't mention a name because... People already know this person, so I won't mention this person's name, but when this person gets annoyed, this person does this thing with their mouth, takes a deep breath, and stuffs all the emotions down, just stuffs all of it down because it's not okay to be angry. It's not okay. So we lose our temper, and then we call it something else. Well, what do you call that? Well, I'm just meditating. Well, I'm just taking a deep breath and being peaceful. Whatever. The lie is we can't simply call our actions mechanical. We just can't do it because it flies right in the face of all of these pictures of ourselves that pride and vanity and self-love have painted and decorated the inside of our minds and hearts with. It's annoying because it's mechanical and the false personality is always mechanical. The false personality is never conscious. Never. Ever. The false personality is always mechanical. That's what makes it false. It's mechanical. It's not real. It's not conscious. It is just a conglomeration of acquired habits, thoughts, feelings, patterns, attitudes that it got from walking through life, like I've said before, like lint on a blue serge suit in a cat hair factory. Like last night, I was wearing a pair of black pants, and I got up from dinner, and somebody said, Oh, man, there's cat hair all over the back of your pants. And it's true, there was. It's like, so we all accused Lori of vacuuming up all the cat hair in the house and putting it in my seat, which, incidentally, she didn't do. You know, you always have to mention that because there'll be some nut job out there who goes, did you hear what he said about her? I told you he was a terrible person. Shouldn't we be putting him to death with Socrates? Yeah, get the hemlock ready. What is essential in a person never annoys you? What is essential in a person always touches you. Why is it that people are moved by babies? Because they're so essential. They're so close to what they really are. They're not like us yet. We haven't been able to spoil them yet. We look at how they play with something or how they look at something with the wonder in their eyes, with the newness of everything. When I was in Macedonia recently, I met these people and they had a newborn. And well, I don't know, the child was well under a year, probably six months old. And this happens often with me. The child was simply fascinated with me. 
And the reason the child was fascinated was because I was the only adult in the room looking at her. She would stare at me. You just stare at me, and I would look into her eyes and just do nothing else. Just look at her. Just be with her. That's all. Just be with this other being, this other human being, this little human being who had come into this life and who's looking around, taking things in. And I would make this connection. Just look into her eyes. Until finally she would just start to smile and laugh and could not take her eyes off me. And the mother, of course, is going like, wow, she really likes you. She really likes people. It's just that everybody else is so busy with their story, with their this, with their that, with their complaining. Nobody had the time to just stop and be with this little being, which really wasn't such a little being at all. It was a very big being in a little body. Anyway, that happens to me a lot. And the reason it happens to me a lot is because I stop and take time. It's like, well, what else? Is, if you got something better to do, I could be spending time with all these adults, listening to the complaints and the gossip, or I could be spending time with this little being who is just in love with the wonder of life, taking it all in, looking for someone else to connect to, looking for that union that we all seek, because that's what our essential self seeks. That's what the real eye is seeking. It is seeking union, and that's why the false personality is so annoying to it. Real eye doesn't get annoyed. But the false personality is annoying because it wants to stop union. It's all about separation. It's not about joining. It's about separating. The only reason to join is to have enough strength to make the separation bigger. Why is it the countries join together to beat up other countries? Why is it that people join gangs to beat up other people, to hurt other people? Because the false personality only uses unity for one thing, to make a separation bigger to do more violence. If you think that false personality isn't mechanical, it's because you failed to see your own mechanical behavior. Essentially, in our essence, the real of us, there's unity. There's unity of being because we all come from the same substance. The further we move away from what is real at the core of our being, the more violently we disagree with one another. Look, pretty much everybody here is married or has been married. You know that you can get in arguments over the dumbest, smallest, dumbest things. And later you think, what? What? Why? And as you mature and get older, you start to realize, you know, it's just not worth it. Who cares who left the cap off the toothpaste? I'd rather be happy. I'd rather be at peace with this person. It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens more and more. If you're working on yourself. If you're not, well, then you just find another one to yell at. The false personality can't disagree agreeably. It just can't. It has to make a big stink about it. Because all negative emotions lead down to violence, it is always on the road to violence because the only emotions that the false personality ever has are negative. It doesn't have any other emotions. Because it's false, all of its emotions are false. It doesn't have any real emotions. Real emotions have no opposite. Negative emotions have opposites. Unreal emotions have opposite. There are only two kinds of emotions. There are real emotions which have no opposite. And there are negative emotions, which have an opposite. So when we say we love, and then we end up hating the person we say we love, that's an example of a negative emotion. What we call love is an example of a negative emotion. And how you know it is, is it turns to hate, or dislike, or aversion, or irritation, or annoyance, whatever you want to call it. It's all different names for the same thing. We must try to understand what it means to work on ourselves. This may be the last thing people realize when handling esoteric ideas. What it means to work on yourself. 
It's not about, well, this idea, and I know this, and I know that, and I know the law of three, and the law of seven, and I know the Enneagram, and I can do this, and I can remember, and I read that book, and I've memorized this, and I remember, yes, but do you understand what it means to work on yourself? It means work on our being. When you see an angry person, a violent person, a finger pointer, you are seeing a portrait of small being. If it annoys you, it's a self-portrait. The more it annoys you, the better the portrait. It is possible to develop your being, to enlarge it, to expand it. The medicine is strong, but it cures what ails you, cures what ails us. Proper, sincere, daily self-observation will reveal to you that what you attack in others, you have in yourself. Now, notice that I say attack in others. If you observe something in another person and it doesn't bother you, if you have it in you, it's been acknowledged. It's been dealt with. You know, if you set a trap and you trigger it, then the trap's been set. But you can, what, what, do you, what do you call that when you disconnect a trap so that it's no longer a trap? Disarmed. Disarmed, thank you. You disarm a trap. And see, this is what happens is self-observation. If you truly observe yourself the way you should be observing yourselves, the way that esoteric teachings guide us and direct us to observe ourselves sincerely, honestly, on a regular basis, properly. If you do that without identifying, what you do is you disarm all of these little traps that attack other people. That's what happens. It just doesn't become a problem in you. You see it in another person and you realize that it's been disarmed in you and you understand that they're just like you. And instead of attacking it, you have compassion. Now, why is it that there's so little compassion on the planet? Because there's so little self-observation on the planet because there's so much internal considering on the planet, because false personality is all about internal considering, and being is all about compassion, forgiveness, mercy, kindness, love. False personality is all about justice, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's especially their mechanicalness that annoys and defines the limits of our being. When you see that what you attack in others, you have in yourself, and that to the degree that it annoys you, to the degree that their mechanicalness annoys you. That is helping you to define the limits of your own being so that you can see it. It's like the invisible man. He could only be seen in the rain or the snow or smoke, fog, something like that. And then the fog or the rain, the snow, whatever it was, would define him. And so you define your being in the same way because you don't see your being. But it's defined by what annoys you, what irritates you. So when that annoying alert comes up, and it's going to come up, when it does, use it. Use it to see where your being is small. And that's the place to work because that is pointing to something in you that you have yet to acknowledge in yourself, that you have yet to accept in yourself, that you have yet to see, acknowledge, and accept. When you see it, if you can acknowledge it and accept it, you will separate from it. And when you do, it will no longer annoy you in another person. What it will do instead is will call forth compassion and mercy and love. That's what this work is about. Anything else? Well, that's steps to this. You are the best and